One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Buying furniture is not easy. You want well designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle yet the look should be timeless. And you want a custom experience creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture for modern living. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly and are easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. Their outdoor collection features high-quality modular sofas and sectionals made for outdoor living. You can visit their store in Toronto. Cozy now has expanded from an online market to their first in-person space, or go directly to their website at Cozy.com. That's C-O-Z-E-Y.com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com to start customizing your furniture today. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for downloading this week's podcast. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, for our recipes, culinary ideas from around the world, or our latest cookbooks. Now, here's this week's show. This is Most Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Sri Rao is a screenwriter, producer, and author of Bollywood Kitchen. The son of Indian immigrants who settled in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, he grew up on a diet of Indian home cooking and rented Bollywood films, screened in a borrowed college auditorium for the small expat community. I remember as a really young kid, we would go to the Greyhound bus station in Harrisburg late at night and wait for a bus to pull up into the station. And then out of the bottom of the bus would come these huge wooden film canisters that had been shipped from India. And these were the only images of home that they would be able to see for years at a time. Before Sri tells us more about authentic Indian food, I speak with Chef Allison Robicelli, about donuts on the front lines of war. Allison, how are you? I'm, I'm doing well, thank you. Before we get to the donuts, there were a lot of volunteer organizations, religious organizations, the YWCA, the Jewish Welfare Board, the Knights of Columbus, people who were volunteering, many of them women, to help out just behind the front lines. So th- this was baked in, no pun intended, to the war effort that there were people volunteering going over to Europe to help out, right? Yeah. World War I breaks out. It was horrifying. They they were entering a war that was unlike anything anybody had ever seen. You know, there was no such thing as automatic weapons before then or mustard gas. Uh, there was no air warfare. And uh, the Salvation Army said, we're going to go. And Their job was sort of like just to kind of bring up the morale of these guys. And they started making some donuts. But but when they went over, 
the, the idea of, of making donuts had not occurred to him, right? Yeah. You know, before that, donuts were not really a huge thing. You know, there were no donut shops on the corner. There were no donuts in diners or, or bakeries. And yeah, they weren't a ubiquitous thing that everybody had thought about. So these girls, two of them in particular, their names were Helen Perviance and Margaret Sheldon. And Helen had this idea about making donuts because it was just a comfort food for her. And it's much easier than making cakes or pies, which are highly laborious. And they had the ingredients. I mean, they didn't have like this, you know, huge budget in the war. (laughs) They had rations. So you have a little bit of extra flour. And there's a couple of cans of evaporated milk and and baking powder. It's, It's a very simple recipe. So they, you know, put them together and, you know, the legend had it was that they would, you know, they grabbed two soldiers' helmets and they fried in it. But it really was probably more of a pan. And and, and these are baking powder donuts. They're not Yeah, no, no, no. Totally uh, baking powder. You know, there's a sense of urgency behind these donuts. I mean, you you have bombs going and people screaming and you need to feed thousands of men in no time. So you can't be too twee about anything. And as we saw later on with World War II, um, you get a taste for things in Europe. So they come back to the United States and they're like, God, you know, I I miss those donuts from the war. And they were easy enough to make. So coffee carts started selling them. So obviously donuts existed before World War One. Was this a, a German tradition? Was this from, uh, you know, Norway or Sweden? Where, where did they come from? It sort of has roots in a sweet bread cake, a sweet yeast cake from Germany. And then in time, it came to America. And then when baking powder was invented or became popular in the mid-18th century, because, you know, if you run out of donuts, you could just whip some more up. You don't have to wait the 24 hours. So I think it became sort of an American bastardization of Northern European recipes. You worked on the recipe, just the classic baking powder donut recipe. I gather you tried to improve on it, but decided that... um, Either A, you couldn't, or B, there was no point in trying to. Yeah. I kind of always want to like, oh, well, maybe I can approve off of this. Maybe I can do something better than somebody was making in a literal trench uh, in World War One. But the more I tried it, I was like, this is kind of perfect the way it was. There's just something about kind of like that that sense of plainness and the sense of urgency as well. It's not supposed to be delicate. It's not supposed to be fragile. It's not supposed to be artisan. Um, It's just supposed to be warm and filling and really good. You know, there are a lot of instances of them writing back home from the the front lines talking about the donuts because it's the only bright spot. You know, you can't you can't write to your wife and, and talk about your friends dying or being maimed, but you could talk about like having a nice donut and all those sorts of things that you're really trying to focus on and, and really trying to hold on to that, that gets you through all that. Allison, thank you so much. I really enjoyed chatting with you uh, about the grand scope of humanity from the very worst to the very best. Thank you. Thank you, Chris. It was wonderful to speak to you as well. That was author and reporter Allison Robicelli. You can subscribe and listen to Mill Street Radio anytime as a podcast. New shows are available every Friday on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Please subscribe and get all of our shows downloaded right to your phone. Now, it's my favorite part of the show. We take some of your calls uh, with my co-host, Sarah Moulton. Sarah Moulton, how are you? I'm good, and I'm ready to hear what people want to know. Welcome to Mill Street Radio. Who's calling? Magdalene from Chicago, Illinois. So how can we help you? I make this absolutely delicious amazing apple cake and I call it a cake but it's not really a cake it's kind of in between like a cake and like a quick bread it's almost like a banana bread but not as dense so it's kind of in the middle and the problem that I'm having is I bake it and it's fine but the next thing after that it gets really like soggy and wet almost right and don't know what I'm doing wrong. Can I ask a question, which is, are the apples pureed like an apple sauce and put into it, or are they actually in pieces? No, they're diced. And I don't saute them. I put them in raw. Yeah, saute That's them. the problem yeah, right there. If you saute them in a big skillet uh, with just a little bit of butter and maybe a tablespoon or two of sugar to help get rid of some of the liquid, 
for seven mm-hmm. or eight minutes until they brown and caramelize, you'll solve your problem, I think, because apples contain a lot of moisture. Right, and what they're just doing is as they sit in the right. cake, they just continue to give off moisture, which right. is why it continues to get wetter and wetter and wetter. I see. So also in the recipe, I put one cup of vegetable oil. Would you recommend kind of decreasing that a little bit to cut down on? No, the vegetable oil has it's nothing not to problem. do with, with it being soft and wet. So the recipe calls for eggs. If I wanted to make it a vegan recipe, what would I use to substitute the eggs? Oof, that's a whole different ball game. Flaxseed, that would work, but you can't just figure it out on your own. This is, in fact, rocket science, so you'd have to go get a vegan or a gluten-free whatever cookbook and look at that recipe because the eggs obviously do lots of things. They provide rise, they provide binding mm-hmm. in the cake okay. or the bread. But flaxseed meal, psyllium, that kind of thing would provide structure, sure. We don't know how much or how to, yeah. It has to be engineered from the ground up. You can't just substitute, I think. So, yeah, okay. give that a shot. Yes. All right. Well, thank Great. you. Well, I love you guys, and I love your show. Thank so. you. Thank you. Thanks okay. for calling. Really appreciate it. Bye-bye. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Renee from Pasadena, California. Hi, Renee. How can we help you? Yeah, so I was just wondering a little bit about convection cooking. So I don't actually have a convection oven. I'm actually a graduate student, so it's going to be a while before I get something nice like a convection oven. But I did go visit my grandmother for Thanksgiving, and she got this really nice new convection oven, and um, she decided not to use it, and she doesn't actually know how to use it. But she has a setting in the right. oven that lets her choose between regular heat or convection. Right. So she just chose sort of what she knew right. for the turkey. So I was just curious if there's ever an instance when you would not want to use convection. Sure. Well, first of all, 99% of the people have convection ovens never use the convection mode, A. B, <laughs> really? uh, they have two little fans, like $10 fans in the back of the oven that just spin around. So it sounds like it's this high-tech thing. It's just some fans, right? It just moves air around. It's very good at cookies because it means you can do two trays at once. You should still move the trays around halfway through baking, but it'll make it possible to have evenly cooked cookies uh, on two trays. It's very good for roasted meats, like a chicken, for example. You get a nice, nice, nice crispy skin. Nice crispy skin. It's great for that. It's good for bread, not a sweet bread, but a rustic bread. Do a nice job on the crust. The one thing you should never use convection for is a sweet dessert, a cake, for example, because it'll rise too fast. And then get blown. Yeah, it won't set properly. It'll rise too quickly, and then it'll collapse later on. So a souffle would be a disaster. A cake would be a disaster. But breads, non-sweet breads, roasted meats are great. Pie pastries are great. Cookies are great. But you have to get, I mean, the premise of a convection oven is it's forced air, so therefore it's supposedly more even heat. Right. Not necessarily true, I mean, in a home oven. But you have to get used to working with it because generally it's hotter at the same temperature. So instead of 450, you might set your oven to 425. Yeah. So you have to get used to it. We found it depends. The the problem is convection is like high-altitude baking. There's no one simple formula. You just have to play around with yeah. that. And sometimes it's, it's, you need to take your items out sooner, slightly less earlier than you would have in the regular oven. So you just have to get used to it. You know, if you are a graduate student and you have a list of things that you want to achieve someday and have in your kitchen, a convection oven would not be at the this top of my list. This is number 836. Yeah, it would not be yeah. the top of my list. A stand mixer... A slow cooker, I don't know, all sorts of, you know, food processor, all -hmm. sorts of other things come before a convection oven. Yeah, I do have my stand mixer, and I love it. Don't you? And you'll have it forever. Yeah, Yeah. it's great. Yeah, Yeah. so, I mean, cookies is really the one thing it excels at. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. What about pizza? Does pizza work for a convection oven, too? Sure. Okay. I mean, the thing is, pizza cooks so fast, I'm not sure how much difference it makes, but. All All right. right. All right, Renee. Thank you. I love the show. Thank you. Okay. Thanks for calling. Thanks. Bye. Bye. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. If you have a cooking failure and you want to give us a call, the number is 855-426-9843. One more time, 855-426-9843. Or send us an email at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Sonia up in northern Michigan. How are things up in northern <laughs> Michigan? You sound happy to be there. Well, oh, I mean, God's country. 
<laughs> it is. I know many people from there, and they all say the same thing. Yes. So, how can we help you in the kitchen? Being from Chicago, we used sugar all the time, and I always had colds and flus. When I moved to the UP up in northern Michigan, my doctor used only honey. And when he cut himself with a chainsaw, he used honey and vitamin E oil and ended up with no scar. So since the 70s, we switched. I've raised bees for many years, so I'm a huge proponent of honey. The only problem is honey's really an impossible substitute in baking, you know, for cakes and that kind of thing. It just doesn't act like sugar does. And you uh, also don't want to add equal part. You know, right. if you had a cup of sugar, you wouldn't want to add that much honey. Right, because it's sweeter. You could substitute maybe a quarter of the sugar with honey or something for the flavor. I don't think you'll ever get exactly the same texture that you would with sugar. Sugar is hygroscopic. It's, it, it, it reacts differently. Yeah. yeah. You know, in terms of baking, I don't think it's going to save you or not save you to use sugar as opposed to honey where appropriate. But, you, you know, I have another suggestion. We just at Milk Street did a test of raw sugars, and I'm a total convert now because raw sugars, there's a whole palm sugar, you know, coconut sugar, et cetera. There's a whole bunch of them, and we found that you can substitute easily and they have a tremendous amount of flavor. It's sort of like all-purpose flour has no flavor, and that's why people are using right. you know, rye flour, whole wheat flour, in proportion. So I, I would try using one of those. Again, uh, it wouldn't be cup for cup, though, because it's a different granular size. Yeah, you could do it by right. weight. You'd I have, have to weigh it. But I would try that because you'll get a lot more flavor. It's probably healthier because it's less refined. Than uh, white sugar. You're not going to have all the chemistry problems you'd have with That you'd have with honey. With honey. Where I'd use honey and bacon is, is the drizzle or yes. the glaze at the end where or you're looking compote. for that. Yeah. If, you, if you have a, a liquid of some kind, it's fine. Yeah. Well, you know what? Just do it. You know, maybe if it was four parts sugar, use three parts honey or something like that. Cut it down by a quarter or a third. Yeah, try it. I mean, it'll be different, but I agree with you. Honey well, is terrific. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much for calling. Yes. Please tell the sugar book man to get us a honey book. Okay. So he can compare for us. All right, I'll tell him. I'll Thank call him today. Thank you so much. All right, yeah, take care. Okay. <laughs> You're listening to Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Coming up next, my conversation with Sri Rao. I'll be speaking with him about his new cookbook that pairs Indian home cooking with Bollywood films after the break. I'm Christopher Kimball, and now here's a word from our friends at Allagash Brewing Company who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street. Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine since 1999. So a white beer is a very old style of beer. Traditionally, it was brewed with spices of some type, typically coriander and orange peel. And I think one of the things that makes Allagash White distinctive and different is the rare combination of complexity and drinkability. And it's sometimes remarkable to stop and realize that I never get tired of it. You know, I'll open a can or I'll pour a glass and the first sip and I'm like, man, this beer is good. (laughs) There are a lot of different ways that folks can enjoy an Allagash White. And here are some of the examples of what folks here at the brewery like to do. My favorite thing to pair with an Allagash White is simple, beautiful seared scallops over a bed of fresh greens with blood orange and shaved fennel. My favorite would probably have to be like an Italian or a hoagie, capicola, pickled vegetables, crusty bread. It's got that nice lemony, zesty character that just gets you ready for the next bite. Ultimate pairing for me is this dish called bosam, which is this like big pork shoulder with like salt and brown sugar. We also call it candy pork in my house and a little like scallion ginger sauce. It's like lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, and it's just perfection. My other top choice was like a hot dog. Like just have a hot dog and have an allagash white. You don't need to dress it up. There's something about mussels with beer especially the white, that is just so good. 
feel like it goes really well with different soft cheeses that aren't too dominant, but then also with like spicy Indian food. So I think it's just really versatile. I could imagine like something like um, like lemon meringue pie. That would be really nice. Pairing Allagash White with carrot cake is a thing of beauty. This maybe it sounds really boring, but pepperoni pizza. <laughs> I feel like after a long week, having like a nice warm pepperoni pizza and a cold Allagash White is just <sighs> like you made it. Like you did your week. You deserve this pizza. You deserve this beer. It's perfect in summer. It's perfect in winter. I haven't really found a flavor that I don't think works really well with Allagash <laughs> Yeah, so not only do I drink it while I cook, I often cook with it. So if I'm creating some kind of stew, I'll add a little bit of Allagash White to it. A lot of people use Allagash White in like a fried fish batter. Anywhere where you can add like a spritz of lemon or a spritz of lime, that could be the beer. We are very food-minded here at Allagash, obviously. <laughs> and I think because of that, Allagash White is kind of subtle in a way that not all beers are, and I think that makes it very food-friendly. I think it tends to unlock qualities in the food that you otherwise wouldn't necessarily notice. Like it's not too hoppy or it's not too sweet, so it sits right in the middle and sort of brings the flavors of the dish to life. If you ask anyone here at Allagash, we're pretty much all stands for this beer. We love it so much because every time you have it, you pick up something new. Every time you come back to it, you're reminded like, oh wow, yeah, that's really good. This is Jason Perkins again. Just want to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com locator to find Allagash White near you. For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Bollywood and Indian home cooking were the two mainstays of Sri Rao's upbringing in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. His cookbook, Bollywood Kitchen, pairs Bollywood movies with his mother's home cooking, offering recipes that reflect the true nature of Indian food far beyond chicken tikka masala. Sri, how are you? I'm great, thank you. How are you doing? I loved your book. And one of the things you say in the preface is, quote, you don't know Indian. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was just a great comment. Could you elaborate on what you meant? Yeah, you know, as Indian food becomes more popular here in the United States, I'm struck by the fact that most people who say that they like Indian food, or actually even people who say that they don't like Indian food, probably don't really know what Indian food is in terms of the type of food that we eat at home. So for example, chicken tikka masala is not Indian. And <laughs> I, I unfortunately have to um, break a lot of people's hearts when I explain that to them. You know, chicken tikka masala, the legend goes, is a dish that was invented in Great Britain by a Western chef who poured tomato soup over chicken curry to make <laughs> the uh, Indian chicken curry more palatable to British taste buds. So Indian food that we eat at home is not like restaurant food in that it is much simpler and healthier. Restaurant Indian food tends to have a lot of creams and oils, a lot of deep fried food, but the food that we eat at home is quite different from that. Yeah, I always thought cooking in the 60s and 70s, mm -hmm. a lot of those recipes didn't seem to me like simple everyday cooking. They were sort of the fancy recipes. And now in the last 10 or 15 years, we're starting to get, you know, the simple things that people actually cook at home, which is much more appealing, I think. That's right. And people also, um, I think, need to understand the sort of history of Indian food as it's tied to the history of immigration from India here to our country. And most of the Indian restaurants that we have had over the last 40 years have been founded by men that have come from a particular region in India, from northern India, from Punjab or from Bangladesh. Um, recently, in the last five or 10 years, we've had more regional Indian restaurants pop up in the country from South India, for example. But still, all of those chefs and restaurateurs were born in India. So they have been trying to recreate the food that they grew up with or restaurant food from India, which is very different from the food that I grew up eating as an Indian American who was born here in the United States. So let's get to the, the movies. This is called Bollywood Kitchen after all. So when you were a kid, someone in your family would rent a film for 30 bucks uh, at the end of the run, and you'd sit in a college auditorium with a few other families and watch these movies, right? 
That's right. I love that story. (laughs) Yeah. So my parents um, came to the United States um, a a while ago in 1959. My dad came here to go to college. And at that time, there were very few Indians um, here in the United States. There were only some 10,000 Indians here. And by way of contrast, currently there's something like 4 million. So when I was growing up in the 80s, there were very few other Indian families in the town in Pennsylvania where I grew up. Um, There were no Indian restaurants, there were no Indian grocery stores, but my parents um, love Indian films, these Bollywood films. And so what my mom did was she found a a, a tiny little classified ad in a community um, uh, newspaper out of New York, an Indian newspaper out of New York, where someone was advertising that he could get a hold of movie prints from India. And so she called up the guy and the money that he needed was more than um, my parents and their friends could afford. So she negotiated him down to like $30 um, as a rental fee, which uh, was $5 for each family here in our <laughs> community. Uh, there were six families total. So they would raise the $30. And at the end of the run, after the movie had uh, made the rounds of big cities like New York and Chicago, the guy would send the film canisters to our town, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. And I remember as a really young kid, we would go to the Greyhound bus station in Harrisburg late at night and wait for a bus to pull <laughs> up into the into the station. And then out of the bottom of the bus would come these huge wooden <laughs> film canisters that had been shipped from India. And my dad would carry them um, back to the car. And then uh, one Sunday a month, uh, my parents would get a local college auditorium that had been donated. And um, a couple of Indian families would get together and, and put this old film into a movie projector and watch uh, a, a Bollywood film. And it was really um, a wonderful experience for them because these were the only images of home that they would be able to see for years at a time. So let's talk about Bollywood films. Obviously, there's dancing and singing. You know, people just show up all of a sudden and there's a <laughs> crowd of dancers. But uh, you say nobody's actually singing. It's all lip synced. Uh, and they use playback singers. Could you just talk about that? That's right. One of the things that's really surprising to folks here in America is that in Bollywood films, which are all musicals, the actors are not actually singing themselves, which is what we're used to when we think of musicals, whether they're on Broadway or the um, the Hollywood musicals of the 1950s. In India, because all the movies are musicals, and because they produce some 1,500 musicals a year, you it's very hard to find actors who can act and dance and sing to be a true triple threat, enough actors at least to to populate all of these films. So what they do is they uh, pick actors to be in the movies, and then the songs are recorded by what we call playback singers, who are sometimes just as famous as the actors, but they are professional singers who record the songs for the film, and then the actors lip sync to them on screen um, while they're dancing to the musical numbers. So... Uh, You also say this is a little bit like Rocky Horror Picture Show, that you're not supposed to sit there quietly, right? There's a little bit of audience uh, participation when watching these. Absolutely. So I'm a screenwriter, um, a filmmaker, and nothing bugs me more than when people talk through a movie in a theater or even people when people talk through a TV show because I know how hard it is to put together um, something like that. That, however, is not the case when it comes to Indian cinema. Uh, with Indian cinema, it's actually um, encouraged for you to respond, to laugh, to comment back at the screen. Um, it's not unusual in an Indian movie theater in India to find people getting up and dancing in the aisles if they're <laughs> particularly moved to do so. And also all of that is a way of, of the audience really enjoying the film. And as you pointedly said in your book, Slumdog Millionaire was a British film, not Bollywood. So get that straight, right? <laughs> yes. Just as I, I like to tell people that chicken tikka masala is not real Indian food, I also like to tell them that Slumdog Millionaire is not a Bollywood movie. I enjoyed Slumdog Millionaire, and I think it was a great film, but it is a British movie that was directed by Danny Boyle, and it happens to have a song in the closing credits where the characters dance in the train station that right. people think is is Bollywood, but that dance number in the closing credits was really just an homage to Bollywood. It's it's not actually right. a Bollywood movie. So let's talk food. You start with Bollywood popcorn, which is a spiced popcorn. Just take us through some of the everyday foods, uh, rice and lentils, for example. 
Yeah. So the staples of um, an Indian diet are are rice, lentils, simple breads like roti, um, vegetables. It's very vegetable focused uh, because there are hundreds of millions of vegetarians in India. So even those of us who do eat meat, like I do eat meat, um, meat is really a supplement to the meal as uh, as opposed to being the star of it, the way that we might be used to meat and potatoes. But um, one example of um, an everyday type of dish is kichdi, which is the rice and lentil dish that you're referring to. And it's a really simple, comforting homestyle meal that everyone all over India, regardless of what region you come from, regardless of what background you come from, everyone eats their version of kichdi, which is a, um, a very simple stew that is made by boiling rice and lentils together. And um, you can use different types of lentils. Um, each family has their own preference. In my um, book, I, I like to use uh, moong dal, which is our sprouted mung beans, um, and mixed with rice. And they're boiled until they become very soft in consistency. And then into it, you um, add a variety of spices. So I like to add uh, ginger and black peppercorns. Um, some folks act, like to add some simple vegetables. And it turns into a sort of a one-pot meal. And kichdi is something that people eat when they have an upset tummy, when they're feeling under the weather, when they need a quick dinner and just need to whip something up in, in 15 minutes. Um, it's also something that we feed children and babies as one of their first meals. So it's a really, um, it, it's, a, it's a dish that has a soft spot in a lot of Indians' hearts. And then kima, if I pronounce that properly, a ground beef curry sounds another like another thing that would translate well to the American home kitchen. Absolutely. Kima is one of my favorite dishes. It's m probably my mom's signature dish that all of my friends who have ever tried absolutely love. And it's a perfect example of, of, of Indian American cuisine, how my parents and their generation came here to America and adapted their Indian recipes to the American kitchen and the American supermarket. So Kima in India is made with minced mutton um, or, or ground lamb. And here in, um, in a in the United States, that uh, that ingredient was not readily available when my parents came here. And so they adapted it, my mom adapted it by using ground beef. So um, it has turned into a really uh, wonderful dish that starts with regular ground beef and um, mixed with sauteed onions that have a whole bunch of Indian spices in them. Garlic, ginger, coriander, cinnamon and clove, um, cayenne, and these spices meld with the onions and the ground beef in a in a one skillet meal that is is really delightful and can be eaten with either rice or with, with roti, which is bread. Uh, rice pudding is obviously something we like here, but it's something that's very much part of Indian cooking here. Um, is there any significant difference between how you'd prepare it uh, with your tradition? Uh, did they use orange blossom water, anything else that goes into it, or is it pretty standard fare? The thing about Indian desserts, I find, is that a lot of folks here in America or in the West don't particularly like traditional Indian desserts because they tend to be very sweet and they can sometimes be a little one note. But there are a couple of Indian desserts which I think are very suitable to the American palate. And one of those is kheer or rice pudding because we're used to rice pudding in different forms. So the, the kheer that I make is um, sort of a shortcut kheer. So I um, use condensed milk along with regular milk, along with whole milk, to sort of speed up the process and to make the kheer in about a half an hour. In India, they do sometimes add things like rose water, but I find that those flavors are not really appealing to my palate personally. And I, and I find that the kheer is really most enjoyable when you sort of keep it simple and then garnish it with um, some nuts, with some pistachios, or with some almonds. Uh, everybody likes to roast a chicken. Could you just talk about that? Because here in America, we tend to just put a, a naked cold bird into a hot oven with salt and pepper, and that's about it. Yeah. So Indians really believe in marinating our meats. And that's a technique that we use a lot. I think that it um, came over from the Middle East. I think that's an influence that we borrowed from Persia and from that region of the world. So this roast chicken that my aunt Geetha always makes, and I frankly can't make it as good as her, I must admit, but I've put her recipe with her approval in the book, is a, uh, is a whole chicken that we marinate for a couple of hours, but ideally overnight in this wonderful, thick, 
yogurt marinade, which is yogurt mixed with garlic and ginger and a whole bunch of other spices that you slather the whole bird with. And it gets a little messy, but um, you slather the bird with it. You put it in the refrigerator overnight. And then the uh, next day or a couple of hours later, you take it out and, and just sort of pop it in the oven. And that yogurt marinade turns into this deeply crusty and flavorful mm. exterior for the bird. And it also, of course, moisturizes and keeps the, the meat really tender. Uh, some of these recipes I would not have expected. A simple zucchini stir-fry. Is that something that, that is just an Americanized recipe, or is that something you'd actually make in India? Because there are so many vegetarians in India, because it's a part of the Hindu religion, Indian cuisine and Indian home cooks have found a way to turn any vegetable under the sun into a delicious curry. So we take some of these vegetables that are not indigenous to India, like Brussels sprouts or asparagus. In the case of zucchini, um, it's another you know great vegetable that's available so readily here in America and available year-round that I thought, why not? add Indian spices to it. And the technique of Indian cuisine is really simple. It's really just about sauteing your onions, adding in your spices, and then throwing in your main ingredient. And that main ingredient can really be whatever you happen to have. So if you have zucchini, you know, in in your refrigerator, if it's the summertime, and you have a lot of zucchini left over, you can throw in zucchini with these Indian spices, and it will really come alive in in a whole new way. Is there any moment in a Bollywood movie that just you know, we all have our movie moments that, that really stay with you as a kid watching those movies for $30 in, in the uh, college <laughs> auditorium that just remain with you today. Yeah, absolutely. As a little kid growing up in suburban America where everyone was white and Christian and very different from me, I had never seen people that look like me on a screen. And so when we first got a VCR in 1982, it was really a life-changing moment because when my parents popped in the first tape, I saw people that look like me on a TV screen. And I didn't even speak the language at the time. I learned Hindi by watching Bollywood movies and by reading the subtitles as a little kid. And so this was really the way that I learned about my culture, the way that I learned about where my parents came from, the way that I learned about India and the storytelling and the music and the language. And so... For me, it holds a very special place in my heart, and I think that's the case for most second-generation Indian Americans like myself who were born here. Regardless of where our parents came from in India, what region they came from, what religion they are, what language they speak, we are, as a generation, we are all unified by Bollywood movies because it's the way that we were connected to the motherland. And if you've ever been to an Indian American wedding here in the United States, you know that it is just a celebration of three days of Bollywood dancing and Indian food. And um, that's because those two things really um, hold a dear place in our hearts. Uh, Thank thank you so much. This is fast. It's a great book, Bollywood Kitchen. Some of these recipes I'm definitely going to try, and and I love the, the connection to Bollywood as well. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. That was Sri Rao, film producer and author of The Bollywood Kitchen, home cooked Indian meals paired with unforgettable Bollywood films. You know, one of the things Sri Rao told me in our interview was that Bollywood earns more per year than Hollywood and actually produces many more films. One day you read about the brilliant Persian mathematicians of the 8th century, and then you find out that paper currency was invented in China, the Russians invented the helicopter, and then incredibly, the dour Swiss invented the comic strip. And now sticking to movies, the Nigerian film industry, Nollywood, employs over one million people, the second largest employer after agriculture. It's even larger than Bollywood. The sand is shifting under our feet. Right now, I'm heading into the kitchen at Milk Street to chat with Lynn Clark about this week's recipe. Lynn, how are you? I'm great, Chris. We're talking about a Spanish dish, uh, and I was actually in Madrid not too long ago and had churros and all sorts of wonderful things, but I never had torrijas. I never heard of torrijas. I wish you told me before I went. So what is it? (laughs) So it's Spanish French toast, but not the French toast you think of when you think of breakfast food. This is a dessert in Spain. So we start by soaking it in a mixture of orange juice, powdered sugar, orange zest, and sherry. And the sherry is sort of what makes it a dessert. It kind of elevates it to the dessert level. And what is the it? What kind of bread? So it's challah here. It's typically done with baguette in Spain. Uh, we liked challah. It was a little richer, had a more dense crumb. It didn't kind of crumble apart when we soaked it. And we really wanted to get that flavor on the inside and make sort of a creamy, custardy interior. 
So I have a question. So in Spain, do they call it Spanish French toast? <laughs> or is that it, just your nomenclature? They call it torrijas. <laughs> Very good. Uh, and so do you just do this on a, in a skillet to cook it, or you bake it, or what? It's in a skillet. It's actually shallow fried in oil. So regular French toast you typically make in a little bit of butter or oil. This is actually shallow fried, so it gets a really crispy exterior. After we've soaked it, we put it in some eggs and flour, uh, cinnamon, clove, sugar, orange zest. Then after it comes out of the oil, we dip it back in that sugar mixture with the spices. It gives it a nice crispy coating on the outside, almost like you said, like a churro. So I can skip my maple syrup, evidently. I think you're going to get enough sweetness from this. You're not going to need your Vermont maple syrup. I know you love Vermont. But in this case, you'd want to just leave it as it is. Maybe some berries, a berry compote, but really it doesn't need any more sweetness. It's a little edgy, berry compote. But okay, Spanish French toast, otherwise known as Torrias. Sounds great. has sherry as well and spices. And uh, maybe I'll try it for dessert tonight. Thank you, Lynn. You're welcome. I'm Christopher Kimball. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Coming up, more of your culinary questions and dilemmas with my co-host, Sarah Moulton, after the break. You know, wonderful pistachios have become my go-to snack. Now, I could list all the health benefits. They're a good source of protein, fiber, and unsaturated fats. But for me, flavor comes first. And that's why it's pistachios, not peanuts, in our household. Wonderful pistachios come in a variety of flavors and sizes, including sea salt and vinegar, chili roasted, and smoked barbecue. Check out wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. That's wonderfulpistachios.com. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Now it's time to take some of your calls, and uh, Sarah Moulton is with me. Sarah, you're ready. I am, Chris. I am so ready. Welcome to Milk Street. Who do we have on the line? This is Mary. I'm from Albuquerque. How can we help you today? Well, I have an old recipe that I've made years and years. My mother made it, my grandmother. It came from the Netherlands. And when I moved to Albuquerque, I started having problems with it because... It's a crust that's kind of like a pie dough, Mm -hmm. but it's um, a wet one. And then the interior is almond paste and sugar and some eggs. Mm -hmm. And you roll it up. And when I do it here, it spews everywhere. The (laughs) The almond paste comes out? The interior in. And I know that altitude does some weird things to things. 
but I can't find anything in the books about pastry. Well, one thing, I have this wonderful book about cooking at high altitude, and it's called Pie in the Sky. Or I've seen... Yeah, I have that one. And she talks about how pie dough, you know, can tend to dry out at high altitude, so you might need to add more liquid to your pie dough than you normally would. The crust is actually a pound of butter, four cups of flour, and then a cup of water. So it's already very wet, mm-hmm. and so you get a, a wet dough, and then it's refrigerated overnight. And how do you roll it out? And then I roll it out on my countertop. I have, like, granite countertops. Using more flour. Yeah. What's happening? Is the dough cracking and the filling leaking out? Is that what's happening? It's more like an explosion. <laughs> so it seems okay at the beginning when I, you know, as I'm watching right. through the glass the window. And then it's like the dough just gives up and, yeah. So the filling's expanding? Would you say the filling, let me ask you a question. In the <laughs> filling, like 20 there's almond paste and eggs. Is there more sugar, too? Yes. Because another one of the things she talks about is pecan pie and how at high altitudes the sugar can boil over. Oh. And so if this is a very sweet filling, you might want to try to cut down on That's the, a good the sugar in the filling. I mean, I do poke holes in the top, but I guess the, the holes could close up. Well, it's not just that. If this is indeed, you know, sort of turning into a Vesuvial hot, you know, thing, <laughs> you might want to, what's doing that is really the sugar. And maybe okay. try making your dough even a little wetter. And the reason I asked you how you were rolling it out is I would roll it out between two pieces of parchment so you can use less flour. Okay. But I would make it so wetter. Keep it really wet. Yeah. I think the sugar is a good point. Yeah. 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 Any rate, I hope these two possible things help you uh, with that's this a good point. family I think recipe. It's a sugar. More wet dough and less sugar. Less okay. sugar. I yes. Will try. Okay. okay. Thank you. Take care. Thank you. Bye bye. Welcome to Mill Street Radio. Who's calling? Hi, this is Jen. Hi, Jen. Where are you calling from? I'm calling from Madison, Wisconsin. How can we help you? Well, I was calling because I like to make yogurt at home. And after I make it, then I strain it. And I have all the whey. Yeah. And I don't know what to do with it. Is there some purpose that it could serve? Well, it is somewhat acidic. So you could use it, you know, for example, in a soup I always finish my soups and stews with a little bit of lemon juice, but why not add some yogurt whey? I think that would be a good idea. Can I be the skunk at the lawn party here? Yeah, go ahead. (laughs) Really? I mean, come on. Well, she does a lot of cooking. Well, I I think you have to figure out something substantive to do with it, not adding a tablespoon or something. Well, no, no, you could add more. You know, if you had a really tangy soup. Yeah. If you were making like, you know, add buttermilk to peas or something, you could add some of this yogurt whey to peas and then puree it and then... Add a little, you know, and then chill it. Over many years in the kitchen, I've done smart things like saving the bones after boning a chicken, you know, put them in the freezer, and then a year later I throw them out because I hadn't used them. I mean, I, you know, <laughs> it, the question is, is this really, you really want to use it or you feel guilty about throwing it away? That's the question. It's a guilt question. Because it, it, it is a pretty massive yeah. amount of whey. Right. Correct? That's the point. Jen, yeah? Yeah, it feels like a lot, and he's right. There's a little bit of guilt in I, I just throw it away. That. Throw it away. <laughs> okay. And blame me. One other thing that might be actually more feasible, you could add it to smoothies. Oh. Yeah. Well, that's not... Okay, well, there you go. As the liquid, you know, with the fruit in the blender, that's why not? not a, that's not a bad idea. Because then you'd use massive amounts. Well, two cups or something. Anyway. And then you taste it and decide that was a really terrible idea. No, you just put a little <laughs> bit of sugar or honey or something well, in maybe. there to counterbalance. Yeah, I, I, that might work. That so was good. Two. I know. I just... I'm at the age where I just don't... Do you save your care appeals, too? Um, no. Okay. All right. You got me. I wouldn't worry about it, but the smoothie idea is probably... Well, I'm glad you signed off on that one. Thank you. Okay. (laughs) All right. Thanks for calling. Thanks for calling. (laughs) Take care. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. This is Milstreet Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Give us a ring, 855-426-9843. That is 855-426-9843. Or send us an email at questions at milkstreetradio.com. Hi, this is Corey from White House, Ohio. Hi, Corey. How can we help you today? Well, I was wondering when toasting most things in a dry pan and then later adding it on, why the main descriptive term always tends to be nutty. I know that the Maillard reaction changes food with heat into dozens, if not hundreds, of complex chemicals and combinations, but we always end up with one adjective. With wine, we have a lot of different terms, so I was just wondering why this seems to be the main one that we use. Well, when you say toasting most things, what things are you saying? Spices, nuts. 
things like that. I know maybe uh, carbohydrates or starches, nuts are a, a big one, or even like brown butter, for example. They say when it smells nutty, that's when well, something happens. Well, wait, it really wait, does smell well, wait, nutty. Wait, 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 wait. Let's back up. You said a dry pan. So dry pan, you would be toasting spices or nuts usually, right? Or do you mean just sautéing meats? I guess dry pan is the bigger one, I would yeah. say. I think the point isn't what the adjective is. I think it's simply that you all of a sudden can smell it. Right? Like if you're toasting spices, it doesn't matter. I mean, if it's cumin, it's going to smell different than if you're tasting something else. Well, but you could say until, until it starts to smell fragrant. Yes. Another exactly. one that I fragrant. use when I'm writing recipes or until it turns a shade darker. So it's like 50 shades of cumin? <laughs> no, let's not Was that your there. latest book, no, Sarah? No, 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 no. <laughs> no, I, I don't think it matters what the adjective is. It's just you start to smell it. It has an aroma. And that's when you know, especially sometimes there's a little, like with spices or pine nuts or something, once they start to go, they go really fast. Right. So Mm -hmm. the fragrance is an early warning system to know that you're getting close to being done. So I don't think it matters what the actual adjective is. And it would also depend on what you're doing, right? It's different spices have different, cinnamon would be different than cumin. Right. So Uh (laughs) there. Yeah, I know that. Personally, I'm not the biggest nut fan in the world. So whenever I'm Oh, no wonder you're having a problem with this. Yes. Why is that the one word that we always tend to use? You know what? If someone did a study of recipe writing over the last 100 years, you would find 583 weird descriptions that people use that are totally <laughs> inaccurate. So until fragrant. Yeah, How about I'd say that? until fragrant, until fragrant. Okay. or it turns a shade darker where yeah. relevant. But usually both things right, happen. Wonderful. We'll end this with 50 shades of fragrant. Okay, <laughs> okay there, there we, we are. Go. Perfect, thank you. All right, thanks, thanks for, for calling, calling, Corey. Bye-bye. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Right now, it's time for this week's Milk Street Basic. You know, in India, they have the great technique right before serving. They make something called an infusion or a tarka. It's either oil or ghee. It's heated, and you add whole spices to it. You bloom the flavor of the spices, and this is then added to a dish just before serving. So here's how it works. Take whole seeds like coriander, cumin, fennel, or mustard, You can use salted butter, or if you like, you can use oil, and cook over medium heat until very aromatic. Then drizzle this hot mixture over blanched or roasted vegetables, or you can also use it over a seared steak, a fish fillet, or even roast chicken. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Right now, it's time to talk to regular contributor Dan Pashman of the Sporkful podcast. Dan, how are you? I'm doing well, Chris. How are you? Good. Um, what is it we're going to argue about uh, this week? Well, I don't know if it'll be an argument, Chris. I'll be curious to hear. I know you have been spending some time traveling the Far East recently. Uh, that's true. Have you been eating any food with MSG in it? Oh, yeah. MSG is a very legitimate ingredient in the Far East, which I appreciate, actually. Uh, it has none of the cancer-causing, <laughs> d- death-inducing uh, characteristics that it's associated with here in this country. Although I'm not really sure any of those things are true. But yeah, it's just an, it's a, just another ingredient in the Far East. That's right. We're actually right now celebrating the 50th anniversary of the beginning of the great American MSG scare, which continues to this day and is built on, turns out, a bunch of bad science and xenophobia. Well, let me ask you about that. What caused the scare in the first place? What, why were people concerned about it initially? Yeah, so 1968... A doctor, Chinese-American doctor, wrote a letter to the New England Journal of Medicine, and he said, I feel like after I eat Chinese food, I get flushed, I get a headache, my neck hurts. Maybe it's the MSG. He didn't say he had definitive proof. He just said, maybe it's the MSG. Someone should do a study. And very quickly, before much science could be done, tons of people came forward and said, yes, me too. That happens to me when I eat Chinese food. Also, it was dubbed Chinese restaurant syndrome, and off it went. And the few studies that were done in those early days were very problematic. Either they did studies where they told people in advance, we're about to give you MSG, which of course made everyone say they had a reaction, or they did studies where they would inject huge quantities of MSG under the skin of mice or rats. And yes, of course, they had a reaction, but nobody is saying that you should be injecting huge quantities of MSG under your skin. And so the science was very problematic, but uh, as is often the case, when something fits into people's preconceived notions of processed foods and foreign cultures, sometimes the science gets cast aside. Well, also, the foods served, some of them were spicier, which could certainly cause flushing. 
I mean, there's a lot of other reasons. It's a totally different diet than what people are used to, I would assume. Exactly. And I think, you know, what you're used to certainly may play some factor. But to, to be clear, there's no scientific evidence that anybody has a legitimate reaction to MSG when they don't know that they're eating it. It is possible that there's a small handful of people out there who do have a legitimate sensitivity to it, far fewer than the number who say they have a sensitivity. But even if there is some small number who do have a real sensitivity, then it's that would make MSG like any other very common, safe, widely used ingredient. You know, a lot, some people are sensitive to onions. It doesn't mean we should ban onions. So when you realize that there was no scientific evidence to back up the notion that MSG gives you flushing and headaches, did you go out and buy a couple pounds of it and it's now <laughs> part of your pantry? I, I, <laughs> I was already doing that even before I read up on the science because there's no good science and because MSG makes food taste delicious. And I got a nice big sack of it on my spice rack and use in moderation, sprinkle a little bit into to finish a soup or a stew or a sauce, where, whether it's my Thanksgiving gravy or whether it's a, a vegetable, tomato, vegetable, bean soup. And what's interesting is, as you say, Chris, Chinese people don't have an issue with MSG. And so people come to realize that there was actually a lot of xenophobia associated with the MSG scare. You know, what are they putting in the food back there that we don't know about? And a lot of it plays into preconceived notions about foods that are man-made or quote-unquote processed. And we should explain, glutamate, not monosodium glutamate, but glutamate is a naturally occurring right. substance. It is in your body right now. It's supposed to be there, don't worry. It's in Parmesan cheese, it's in tomatoes, it's in mushrooms. It tastes delicious. It has a savory flavor. It is kind of the flavor that we know as umami. Monosodium glutamate, all you're doing is taking glutamate and attaching a little sodium, some salt to it. The only reason you do that is that it turns it into a powder that you can easily ship and store and add as a seasoning. It really is not a big deal. Uh, and to lump it in with every other processed food in the world and assume that, they're all, that all quote-unquote processed foods are equally bad is frankly misinformed. You know, I was in Japan recently. I was cooking with Elizabeth Ando, who's written lots of books about Japanese cooking. She said, we don't understand umami in this country. We think it means meaty flavor, you know. And she said, it's, it's just a way of enhancing flavor. So when they take kombu, seaweed, and put it in water to extract some of the ingredients, they just use that as a base for soups and stews to enhance the natural flavor of the other ingredients. So she views umami as, as flavor enhancement, not necessarily as sort of a meaty enhancer. Well, that makes a lot of sense because MSG is a flavor enhancer. And in right. fact, glutamate also occurs naturally in seaweed. You know, and it's funny, Chris, I had this realization that there's this idea that any food that human beings have created through some sort of process must be bad and anything that exists in nature must be good. And the truth is that there are a lot of poisonous <laughs> foods that exist in nature uh, that could kill you. And the only thing that will save your life is something that was made by human beings. And so it's a little bit more nuanced than some people want to believe. Well, you know, it, it's just like all those people who went mushroom picking and someone said, maybe we should check those out before we eat them. And they said, oh, let's just, let's just make dinner. It didn't work right. out too well. <laughs> yeah. I right. mean, n n nature is not kind all the time. That's true. Right. Have you heard about these dummies in Silicon Valley who uh, the latest rage is no. called uh, raw water? <laughs> they're drinking water that hasn't been treated or, or filtered in any way because they're saying that when you treat it and filter it like most tap water in America, you uh, are taking out all the natural stuff that's so good and healthy. And we're, we're going back to the earth to have this natural raw water. And it's like, you know, tell that to people in many other parts of the world who, who have gotten dysentery or hepatitis from their tap water. So, so your conclusion is MSG, although not entirely natural per se— is processed is is fundamentally a natural ingredient, and there's no science to suggest it will have any negative effect. Right. It, it may have negative effect on a very small number of people, far fewer than think they have a sensitivity to it, but it, there is no widespread public health concern with MSG. Generally speaking, it is safe and delicious. So just go buy a little bit for your pantry, put it in the back so nobody can see it, but use it when you wish. I like that. Dan, thank you. Thanks, Chris. You know, I was recently in Dakar in Senegal and found a large display of Maggi flavor cubes at the local market. In Senegal, every home cook uses them. They unwrap one or two small, brightly colored tablets and then throw them into gumbo, soup, or stew. But of course, here in America, we view concentrated bouillon-style cubes as unnatural. 
They contain hydrolyzed vegetable proteins, otherwise known as MSG. Yet the rest of the world thinks that MSG is just fine as a culinary ingredient. In fact, Japan loves kombu, the original source of MSG, as a flavor enhancer to say nothing about soy sauce and other fermented sauces high in glutamates. So as one food writer I know quipped, if MSG is so bad for you, why doesn't everyone in China have a headache? That's it for this week's show. You can listen to our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, or Spotify. Please remember to subscribe to the show. You'll automatically get every single show downloaded to your phone or tablet each week. If you want to learn more about Milk Street, please go to 177milkstreet.com. There you can download each week's recipe, subscribe to our magazine, watch our television show, or order our new cookbook. We'll be back next week, and thanks for listening. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH. Executive producer, Melissa Baldino. Producer, Tristan Cimini. Associate producer, Carly Helmetog. Production assistant, Jackie Nowak. Senior audio engineer, Douglas Sugar. Senior audio editor, Melissa Allison, with help from Vicki Merrick and Sydney Lewis. Audio mixing by Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media. Production help, Debbie Paddock. Theme music by Two Bob Crew. Additional music by George Brandel Eglaw. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by the Public Radio Exchange.